Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, I'm glad to have you. Uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. And as a church, we are studying our way through the book of Genesis. Today, we are picking up our study in Genesis chapter 29, verse 30. So I'd like to ask everybody to get out their copy of God's Word. Get out your notes that we put in your bulletin. Uh, if you need to use your iPhone or your iPad or whatever it is you do God's Word on, that's fine. Open it up. We want to make sure we have the text as we get ready to study the text. Now, we all know what the ideal family situation look like, looks like. It's one man and one woman, and they get married, and they have kids, and they live together all the way to the end, and they practically die together. In fact, we had a uh, summer attendees one, this past year. Uh, they were real elder. They had lived together. They even died within three days of each other. That's like the ideal way it works. But we also know that's usually not the way family situations work. Sometimes people die prematurely, and they're widowed. Sometimes there's a divorce that is in the family situation. Sometimes there's an infidelity. Sometimes there's an out-of-wedlock pregnancy. And all of a sudden, our family situations start to get rather messy. They start to get rather complicated. And we start to say to ourselves, God, could you ever do anything with my completely dysfunctional family mess. Well, I've got good news for you. We are going to study this morning one of the most dysfunctional, messy families in the entire Bible. And what we're going to discover is how God used their dysfunctional, messy family in a great way for His glory and His fame. And if He can use their family for His glory and fame, He can use your family too. Now, before we jump into the text itself, we need to give you the backstory. And I'm going to give you this backstory because there's a lot of visitor, visitors this morning, and you need to have the backstory if you're going to understand the impact of the main story. So here is the backstory. While today we are studying Jacob, his story actually begins with three generations back with Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah. In Genesis chapter 12, what happened was we find God called Abraham out of the area of Babylon, called him, called him to the promised land, and God made a number of promises to him. And one of those promises that God made was that he would have heirs and he'd have a son. But as time wore on, it seemed like God was not good on his word. Because Abraham and Sarah were childless. Sarah was a barren woman. And Sarah became a very desperate and frustrated woman because God didn't seem to keep His word. So eventually what she did is she grabbed her maid, a woman named Hagar, an Egyptian woman, and said, why don't you sleep with my husband? Uh, doesn't sound like a good idea, sleeping with a maid. But that's what she chose. And <laughs> Hagar conceived. She had a son named Ishmael, and Ishmael and Hagar caused all kinds of internal friction in the family. In fact, eventually Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, and Ishmael 
wasn't just frustration for Abraham and Sarah, but Ishmael became the father of the Arabs. And all you need to do is look at the Middle East situation on the news, and you can see what was the fallout of that situation and that choice that Abraham made to sleep with the maid. But God kept His promise. After Sarah was literally in menopause, all of her hope was gone. She conceived, and she had a son. His name was Isaac. Now, Isaac, he married a beautiful woman named Rebecca, and they ran into the exact same problem. Rebecca could not become pregnant. Now, here's a key thing you need to notice. Instead of repeating the sin of his parents, Isaac learned from the sin of his parents, and Isaac actually set himself to pray for Rebecca, to put his arm around Rebecca, and to seek God for the answer to her infertility. Now, here's the cool part. God answered their prayer. Rebecca became pregnant. She had twin fraternal twin boys, that is. They were Jacob and Esau. They're very different guys. Esau was as hairy as a golden retriever. In all honesty, that's what he was like. Not a real godly fellow. He really only cared about two main things, and that was food and women. It's all he wanted in his life. In fact, the guy married three women, three pagan wives intentionally, as if one isn't enough. Jacob, not much better, except for the fact he didn't have that shedding problem. Because it says he was smooth-skinned. But Jacob was a cheat. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was one of those manipulators. And after cheating and deceiving and lying to his father and his brother, and in essence ripping them off of what is essentially millions of dollars in value, he had a run for his life. He told everybody he was on his way to Padamaram, 500 miles away, to hopefully find a decent woman to marry. And that was part of the truth. The real truth was he was afraid his own brother would kill him for what he did. Well, after the long trip, he arrived in town, and the first, one of the first women he meets, if not the first woman he met, was this beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous, knockout woman called Rachel at the well. It was like love at first sight. Could not get this woman out of his mind. Turns out that she is the... Uh, that her father is a man named Laban, who is actually the very brother of his mother. So they're like, they're like semi-related. She's going to be a good girl. So what happens is Jacob ends up working for Laban for seven years to pay the bride price to get this amazing, beautiful woman named Rachel. But here is where the story started to change. On his wedding night after uh, Laban had maybe given him a little bit too much to drink, because it says in the text that's literally what happened, and it was uh, dark out, and so he couldn't really see what was happening, Laban slipped into the honeymoon suite, Rachel's older sister, a woman named Leah, a woman that in the uh, Hebrew it says she was a little soft on the eyes, that's a very gentle way of saying uh, she was, uh, should we call it ugly? In fact, her name in Hebrew means cow. She's called the cow. 
So all of a sudden, Jacob finds himself marrying inadvertently and making love to, on his wedding night, the older, ugly sister, a woman named the cow. Wakes up in the morning, and you trust me, it was a shocker. That is not the woman he expected to find in bed, not the woman he served seven years for. And what happened was he confronted Laban on this issue, and Laban says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll let you have Rachel, her younger sister, too, in exchange for another seven years of service. So the good news is he does get Rachel, and thankfully he gets her in advance payment for another seven years of service in the future, and not the other way around where he has to serve another seven years and then marry her. But this is essentially what happens. Jacob finds himself married to Leah, who is the girl who has an incredible crush on him, and then about a week later marries Rachel, the younger sister that is incredibly in love with him at the same time. Now, ladies, I just want to ask you a question. What do you think marriage would be like if you and your sister were both in love with the same man and married to the same man within one week of each other? You are a dead audience. Can you say disaster? Can you say dysfunctional family? Folks, this is the stuff that even Jerry Springer won't touch. This is how incredibly dysfunctional this family is. What we are going to do is we're going to buckle up and read this story about these two sisters who are scheming and manipulating each other and undercutting each other as they're trying to buy for the affection of the man they love named Jacob. And it is one ugly, incredible mess. But here is the cool part. When we're done, we're going to see how God takes this completely dysfunctional family and uses it for His honor and His glory and His fame in a way that you and I would never have guessed. So let's jump into the text. Genesis chapter 29, we're going to begin reading in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now this was not a happy marriage. It is one messy, terrible relationship. And it begins by saying this, Jacob hated Leah. Now, I read some commentators on this. They say, well, that's just too strong of a word. Probably didn't really hate her. Probably just liked her less than Rachel. But then you just look at the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is hated. It's literally the word for enemy. That is how Jacob felt about Leah. He just hated her. 
He never wanted to marry her in the first place. He is not attracted to her at all. She isn't beautiful. He's angry at her because she intentionally stole his wedding night from Rachel, with Rachel. Jacob doesn't trust her worth one bit because every marriage and every relationship is based on trust. He has no trust in her whatsoever because she was willing to steal his wedding night from him. The marriage is based upon deceptions. Now, to make this even more interesting, it's not like Jacob has to spend any time with Leah. Because the reality is that at the exact same time, he is also married to Rachel, who is the drop-dead gorgeous, complete knockout woman that he had served for seven years, that he had dreamed for seven years. So he doesn't like have to spend any time with Leah. He just hates her. She laughs. He doesn't even smile. Now remember, Leah has a complete crush on him. She can't get him out of her mind. She desperately wants to do anything wifely she can to please him and to capture him and to love him, but he will not even give her the time of day. He hates her. It's exactly how he feels about this woman. Now, before you start to feel too sorry for Leah, you need to realize she bears some responsibility for the predicament she finds herself caught in in this unloved marriage. Here is what her plan was. She had this crush on Jacob, her plan was, if she could just marry him, she could capture him with her sexuality. She could use her sexuality to therefore make him love her. That was her plan, to capture him and enfold him by using her sexuality to manipulate him and change him. And I have to tell you, ladies, that plan does not work. That is a very bad plan to try and capture and change a man that way. So here's the deal. What you want, young ladies, is you want to find a man who actually pursues you. You want a man who's willing to pay the price, to work hard, to uh, acquire you. You want the man who chooses you. You don't want to choose your man. What you need to understand is this kind of backwards relationship where the woman pursues and then uses her sexuality to capture and manipulate a man will not work. It'll end up with a woman who is unloved in her marriage. Now you say, why do you say this? How do you prove this? I'm not going to prove this psychologically. I am going to prove this to you theologically. Because that's really all that matters. Ephesians chapter 5 says the husband and wife marriage relationship is a living, breathing example given to us of the relationship that parallels between Christ and the church. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. Christ sought His bride. 
Christ paid a great price to acquire his bride. Christ pursued his bride. We respond to Jesus because he loved us first, right? You cannot reverse that around. The church doesn't pursue Christ. The church does not manipulate Christ into loving us. The church is not trying to manipulate and control Christ and to get Him to do things. We don't do that. We respond to the love that Christ has for us. And just as those, that relationship order is not arbitrary and reversible when it comes to the relationship between Christ and the church, the way a relationship takes place between a man and a woman is not arbitrary and reversible. Think about what happened with um, Jacob and Rachel. Jacob chose Rachel. Jacob pursued Rachel. Jacob paid for her by working for her for seven years. There was no sexuality involved in that until the wedding night. And when it's all said and done, does Jacob love Rachel? Does Jacob hold on to Rachel? Yes. But when you reverse it, and Leah pursued Jacob, Leah used her sexuality to try and manipulate and hold Jacob. It didn't work. She ended up unloved, hated, and lonely. Young ladies, I say this to you. Wait for the godly man that pursues you. Wait for the man who does the hard work of earning you. Don't follow the path of this world and what the ladies' magazine says, which say flip it all around because you will end up in an unloved marriage. Now, why Jacob doesn't love Leah, the good part is God does love Leah. In fact, God opens her womb, and on the rare occasions when uh, Jacob gives Leah her conjugal rights, she conceives, and she conceives almost instantly. Now, what's interesting is she names each one of her children after the heartbreak and pain in her marriage. For instance, the first child she has is a son. His name is Reuben, which means literally in Hebrew, see, a son. The idea is, look, I've given you a kid. Look at me. Pay attention to me. And it says literally that Reuben is named after the, mi the misery of her marriage. Somebody be attached to me? Pay attention to me? Look at me? Because my husband won't. Imagine that when Reuben goes to like uh, school and all of his friends are like, hey, what does your name mean? Oh, my name means please look at me because my dad never pays any attention to my mom. That's what his name means. Real bummer of a baby name to give your kid, isn't it? But every time she says that name, that's what will come to mind. Another rare occasion when uh, Jacob provides some of her conjugal rights and all of a sudden she becomes pregnant again, except this time she names the child Simeon. 
Simeon has to do with the Hebrew word to hear. And God heard me, and he heard the misery in my marriage. Apparently what is going on is that when Jacob comes home from the field at night, there is Jacob, or there is Leah, and there is Rachel. And consistently, night after night, he grabs Rachel and brings her into the bedroom. And Leah, night after night, is left in the living room crying herself to sleep on the couch because she is so lonely and so unloved and so miserable. So her second son is named after the fact that God has heard me crying myself to sleep. Another bummer of a baby name for your kids to, ex to explain to your kids and for your kids to explain to others. Jacob is uh, intimate with her a third time on another rare occasion. And she conceives again almost instantly. And she names this son Levi. No, he's not a blue gene. Levi literally in Hebrew means attachment. And she says, now I hope that my husband will finally be attached to me. That my husband will finally give me some attention. I've given him three kids. Won't you look at me? Won't you help me? Won't you pay attention to me? Three kids. But what do you think Jacob does? Gives her absolutely no attention, absolutely no affection. He hates her. Talk about an unloved marriage. And Levi has to explain to everyone that hmm, dad has no affection and no care for mom whatsoever. That's my name. I picture it this way. You know, when uh, they end up going for a walk in the park, that you have Jacob holding Rachel's hand, and they sort of walk in the front, and Jacob's sneaking a kiss on her neck, and holding her hand. But about 20 feet behind is Leah, all by herself, you know, pushing one of those double baby strollers. And then she has uh, Levi in one of those pouches, you know, and she's got three kids. You know, she's trying to, to make it all work, but nobody helps her. Jacob just ignores her. Not attached to her at all. That's the family dynamics of what is going on in the dysfunctional family mess. Leah receives some more conjugal rights, and she conceives once again almost instantly, except she names this child Judah. Now, notice it's interesting. The th previous three children were all named in hopes that her husband would maybe give, see her. Her husband would hear her crying. Her husband would finally pay attention to her. But when it comes to Judah, husband's not involved at all. It's just like, praise the Lord. I have another child. <laughs> That's essentially all it is. I've given up on my husband. Men never paid attention to me when I was younger. They call me the cow. Nobody loves me. Give my husband three kids and he won't even pay attention to me. Give me the time of day. She's given up. I picture the family situation like this. You know, the dinner table, there is Jacob at the head of the table, you know, the short end, and then the long end down the sides. On one side, you have Leah, and Leah is feeding those. Gerber green peas, you know, to Reuben. 
at the same time, she's also trying to feed that sort of baby oatmeal stuff, you know, with the other spoon to Simeon. And then she has over here on Levi, you know, he's throwing around the little sipper cup. And then she's nursing at the same time Judah. You know, she's like got four kids, like just vying for her attention. And on the other side of the table is Rachel. By herself, just pushing her food around with her fork. No children, no matter how hard she tried, no matter how hard she wants. And Jacob, even though Leah is desperate for attention, she's desperate for help, she's desperate for love, Jacob still hates her and ignores her right at the dining room table. I told you, this is a dysfunctional family mess. The story continues. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings have I wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Rachel is not happy at all. Her sister has four kids. She has no kids. She is just burning inside with jealousy and anger. In fact, she comes up to Jacob at the midst of her deepest and darkest moments, and she says, you give me children or I will die. Now, that's pretty sad, but in some ways it's also sort of funny. She's blaming Jacob for the fact she doesn't have any kids. Okay, folks, let's think about this. If there's anyone who has a difficulty in this uh, relationship when it comes to conceiving, is it Jacob or is it Rachel? It's pretty obviously Rachel. All Jacob has to do is like be with Leah once and bang, she conceives. But with Rachel, he can be with her night after night after night and absolutely nothing happens. But in her anger and in her jealousy of her sister, she blames Jacob for what is her own problem. Now, let me just give you a little of helpful marital advice. Isn't that the way it often works? When we have marital difficulties, we blame our spouse instead of ourself. Isn't that what happens? We're quick to point the finger this way instead of pointing the finger this way because this is not comfortable. It's easier to blame shift. 
oftentimes we are the source of most of our own marital difficulties. I don't know if you realize that. Let me give you some examples. For instance, sometimes I hear uh, men as I do counseling, and they'll say, you know, I, my wife, we used to have this wonderful, passionate, intimate relationship, but our relationship has grown so cold. When I'm home at night, she is not interested in me whatsoever. She doesn't really care about me whatsoever. She's just thinking about work and busyness, and it's her fault that my marriage has become passionless and loveless. And then I often say, like, well, um, when was the last time you uh, called her during the day? Well, I haven't done that recently. Did you text her? Do you even know her cell phone number, or is it just on speed dial? Have you sent her flowers recently? Have you cultivated her during the day and told her how important she is and how loved she is? Or you just totally forget about her, then come home at night and expect her to be interested in you? And most of the time, the guys go, well, I just come home at night. I'm like, no, you are the source of your own marital difficulties. Don't blame it on her. Blame it on you. You have not taken the time to be wooing your wife and to be passionate with your wife and to cultivate the love of your wife. That's the problem. Her, not you. Or flip it around. Sometimes women will say to me, you know, my husband... He just gives me so much distance. He doesn't share with me. He doesn't be open with me. And I get angry at him. And I let him know that you need to like spend more time at home and you need to do this and need to do that. But he just keeps drawing further and further away. And the question becomes, you talk to the guy, why do you draw away? He says, well, when she's angry like that, I just want to give her more space. I just can't handle the turbulence. I can't handle the emotions. I just need to like... Stay away until she's calm. And the more space he gives her, the angrier she becomes. And she's the source of her own marital difficulty. But she likes to blame it on him rather than her. You see how blame shifting works in a marriage? Let me say it again. We are often the source of our own marital difficulties. Don't blame it on someone else. Look in yourself. Incidentally, Jacob doesn't do much of a better job than Rachel does when it comes to this situation because when she starts venting on him and yelling at him, he responds by yelling right back at her. That's what we learned here. What does he say? Oh, I'm on my next page. I didn't realize that. What does he say? He essentially says, is it my fault that God has withheld the fruit of the womb from you? But it's very interesting in the Hebrew where it says how he yelled at her. It says that he yelled at her by becoming literally hot in the nose. Now that sounds weird. Hot in the nose is a Hebrew colloquialism for what we would do as he say is red-faced. You know when you get really angry, how your face becomes beat red when you lose control and you're just ripping people up, and up one side and down the other? That is the way Jacob treated Rachel. She got emotional and blamed him for her problems. 
He was not soft. He was not patient. He was not kind. He just went and ripped her up one side and then down the other. He yelled at her at the top of his lungs, which incidentally is exactly the wrong way to treat a woman who is heartbroken and emotional and broken. So he just injured her. He did not learn from his own father. Remember what his father did, I told you at the very beginning, when Rebecca couldn't get pregnant, when Rebecca was heartbroken, what did Isaac do? He put his arm around her, and he prayed for her, and he prayed with her, and God allowed her to conceive. What does Jacob do? Tears her up verbally, just ruins her when she's emotionally vulnerable and weak. Now, as a result of this emotional abuse that she gets, she becomes even more desperate. And she says, why don't you sleep with my servant Bilhah? Now, what she does is she intentionally chooses to repeat the sin of Grandma Sarah. She knows the disaster that it caused, the pain in the family that were there. But in her desperation, and when she wasn't protected and helped by her husband, she stepped into the very sin of her grandma. Sleep with my servant. Bilhah conceives, and she names him. First of all, she names him Dan, which means judged and vindicated. So, you know what? God is, ju is judging. He's vindicating me. I am going to get somebody on this board. I'm getting a kid. Not a great child's name. And then she names the next child Naphtali. Naphtali is Hebrew for wrestling, is what it is. I am wrestling with my sister, and I am beating her. Another bummer of a child's name. Your, your name is based on the fact that your mother is finally catching up with her sister and having more kids. Well, here's where it goes. Leah says, oh, you want to bring the maids into the, the game? I can do the exact same, because I have a maid. And here's where it picks up. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. She called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for the women have called me happy. She called his name Asher. So, what you have is Zilpah quickly conceives again. And listen to these baby names. Gad simply means good luck or I got lucky. We've sort of like lost God completely in the picture. She's a very bitter woman at this point. It's sort of like naming your child Lotto or Vegas. Probably not the way to go. Hey, what's your name? Huh? Mom got lucky. That's not good. Not only that, but the next one she names is Asher which is happiness. Like, I'm happy because I'm finally getting ahead of my sister again. You can picture these guys. They have star charts on the refrigerator, you know, and like they're competing to see who's going to win. We have six to two is the score at this point. And then it gets better. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, 
Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me tonight, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So she lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. The situation is Reuben's growing up. Uh, Reuben's probably about five years old at this point. Reuben is out in the field, grumbling around. He finds this plant called a mandrake. And that, for you, that doesn't mean much of anything. It, the main part of this plant has a neat smell to it, but the, the essentially important part is the root. It looks like a carrot root, except it has multiple prongs instead of one prong. And here's what you need to understand. Mandrakes in biblical times were also called love apples. They're spoken of in the Song of Solomon. They have a narcotic property to them. They were often thought to be sort of an uh, aphrodisiac and also to increase fertility. So what happens is Leah has the mandrakes. Rachel sees the mandrakes and says, Oh, I want some because if anything, I need to increase my fertility. And what's happening is Rachel is essentially, she's tried the surrogate mom thing, and she had two kids through her, but it doesn't really satisfy her. So now Rachel is going to the GNC herbal root. That's literally what she's doing. I'm going to try the mandrakes that will hopefully help me get pregnant. By the way, it doesn't work for her, just so you know. So don't spend your money too much at GNC. Uh, but you get an interesting snapshot into the nature of the relationship in this family. Because um, Leah says, you have taken away my husband. Are you going to take away my mandrakes too? In other words, at this point, the only person that Jacob sleeps with is Rachel. And Ra Jacob can't sleep with any of his other wives unless she lets them. Leah, at this point, has never had or has not had for a long period of time any intimacy from her husband whatsoever because Jacob or because Rachel refuses to let her go in. A lot of tension in there. Messy home, dysfunctional home. So what she decides to do is she says, I'll tell you what, we'll make a trade. I'll give you my mandrakes for a one-night stand with my husband. That's literally what happens. This is sex for hire. If you say it's any different, it's not. Literally what goes on. And here's where it gets interesting. She um, has intimacy with her uh, husband, and instantly, instantly she gets pregnant once again. And she names her son Issachar. Now here's where it's fun. You know what Issachar means in Hebrew? Bought or paid for. 
he goes to like school and five people say, your name means like bought and paid for. Yeah, yeah, my mom paid for my dad to be intimate with her. What a bummer of a birth name. I told you this, this family is a complete mess. And another time, there's this conjugal rights that happens, and once again, Leah gets pregnant. And this time she calls her son Zebulon. And this is interesting because it means honored or it means the champion. She has now declared herself the undisputed baby birthing champion in the family. I've cranked out six kids of my own and almost no intimacy from my husband. I have two through my uh, surrogate mom, maidservant. All you can do, sis, is have your two from your maidservant. That's it. I am the champion. And Rachel, the incredible, ravishing beauty, who's always had all the affection of any man she ever wanted, the one who has every man's desire, is finally at the end of a rope, She's completely broken. She's tried the surrogate mom. She's tried the GNC herbal supplements. Nothing works. It's when she's broken is when God remembers her and God comes to the rescue. Isn't that often the way He works in our lives? Brings us to the exact end of ourself before He comes to the rescue. And it says this, Then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Joseph literally means, May God add to me another son. In other words, like, I hope this is only the beginning. Now, she does have another son. His name is Benjamin, and she actually dies giving birth to him. Now, there's a number of applications I gave you along the way as we studied this story, but I want to give you just two big applications that are over this story, that tie this together. And they're going to be number one and number three in your outline. No time for number two here. Here's the first one. The God-sized hole in our heart can only be filled by God. The God-sized hole in our heart can only be filled by God. Leah was desperate for the one thing that her sister had, but she didn't. Rachel was desperate for the one thing Leah had, but she didn't. In fact, they orientated their entire lives around getting the one thing they didn't have rather than being thankful for the things that they did have. Sometimes it's real easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to fixate and focus on one of the things that God hasn't provided for us in our lives. And we think if we would only get it, then we'd be happy, then we'd be satisfied, then we'd be glad. And I have to tell you that when you do get it, it doesn't satisfy. It reminds me of Christmas. You guys remember growing up You gave your mom and dad a a Christmas list. Maybe what you just had to have to be happy on Christmas was a Red Ryder BB gun. Maybe, like for me, I had to have one of those little handheld video games. 
You know, if I, I have to get that football game, Mom and Dad, if I don't have it, Christmas won't be the same. I just won't be happy. And I longed for it, and I dreamed about it, and I desperately wanted it, and I even searched for the presents to find out if my parents got, got it for me. And we looked everywhere, and finally their Christmas morning came, and I've dreamed of it, I've wanted it. I opened it up, and I played it, and by 2 o'clock on Christmas afternoon, I was bored. Ever been there? That stuff can't satisfy? Relationships can't satisfy? Now, I'm not saying that stuff is bad or relationships are bad, but I just want you to realize there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that can only be satisfied by God Himself. You can stick other things in that hole, and it'll realize once you get it there that it's too small. It's not enough. Its joy doesn't last. For some of you, you say, I won't be happy until I get that promotion. And when I get that promotion, I'll get that raise. And then my income will be raised up here. And then I can finally be happy because I have the financial security I want. For others of you, you say, I can't be happy right now because I'm single. And God, you need to provide me that wife. God, you need to provide me that husband. And if I have the wife or if I have the husband, then I'll be satisfied. For others of you, you say, I cannot get pregnant. God, if you could just give me a child, then I'd be happy forever. And I have to tell you that when God does provide those things, or if God does provide those things, you will be happy, but it won't last. The only thing that can provide the happiness and joy in your heart that lasts for your entire life is knowing that you are loved passionately by God. And His plans for you are good and that He loves you so much He sent his, die, his Son to die for you. That is the only thing that can fit that hole. So don't live for the one thing you don't have. Number three, God's people are a grand display of His undeserved grace. I tried to paint this for you very clearly. This is one of the most dysfunctional, messed up families in the Bible. One man married to four women all trying to compete for the bedroom at the same time that they're all pregnant going through postpartum depression and hormonal changes. I mean, can you imagine how this whole thing is so messed up? And these two sisters, all they're doing is vying and competing for each other, not even loving him. It is a completely dysfunctional family. But here is the cool part. This is the very family that God used to build as the basis for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the very family that God used as the foundation of His people that you and I are part of today. In fact, you know that when we someday get to the new creation and we get to the new Jerusalem and we walk in and out of that new Jerusalem for all of eternity, there are 12 gates. And over the names of those 12 gates, inscribed one name over each gate, are the names of this dysfunctional family, the names of these kids. There's the name Reuben. God, will you please see me because, you know, my husband hates me and doesn't love me. Simeon, God, will you please hear me because I cry myself to sleep every night because I have no love from my husband as I am alone. Levi, God, will you please make my husband be attached to me because he won't even give me the time of day. Issachar, God, I had to pay for the intimacy to conceive my own child. 
Those are the names that are above the gates of the New Jerusalem. But here is the point. God took the most, one of the most dysfunctional families of the Bible and used them as the foundation of His people. A grand display of His most undeserved mercy, grace, and love. And my challenge for you is this. If you think your family is dysfunctional and broken and you wonder if God could ever do anything good through your messed up family, look at this one. Look what God did through them. All for His grand display and glory and grace of His might and His kindness and His love. God can use you too. Now, as I close, I want to talk to some of you here who have been with us through the series of Genesis. Or maybe you're just connecting and catching on right now. You're realizing that, guess what? God takes people that have really messy, dysfunctional, broken lives. God takes families that are sort of messed up and patched together. And God redeems them and God remakes them all for His glory and grace. And you've been here and you've been listening. Today I'd like to challenge you to go from a listening person to a full-on Christian. I want to challenge you to give your heart, your soul, and your life to Jesus Christ. To confess your sin to Him to give Him your broken, dysfunctional life, your broken, dysfunctional family, and ask Him to remake you, make you a new person and a completely new family from the inside out, that in this life and for all of eternity, when your name is in the book of life, it'll be a name that is written in there as a grand display of God's undeserved mercy and grace. Do you want to trust Jesus Christ today? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do a prayer, a really simple prayer. If you're going to give your life over to Jesus, I ask you to pray this prayer in your heart after me. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I come before you with my dysfunctional, messy, sinful life. I come before you with my completely messed up, patched together family. We confess our sin to you. I ask Jesus' death on the cross to pay for our sin. And I ask that you'd send the Holy Spirit in my life right now and make me into a completely new person from the inside out. And that I would be for all of eternity a grand display of your undeserved mercy and grace. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now everybody keep your heads down. Keep your eyes closed. If this morning you prayed that prayer and you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to have the courage to look up and to have your eyes meet mine right now. Has anybody committed their heart to Christ? Okay. Dear Jesus, I thank you for using dysfunctional people and for using dysfunctional families and redeeming them for your honor and glory. Because as we look at our own lives and we look at our own families, this is the very hope that we need. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.